All right, if you would, take your Bible and open to the book of Revelation. We're continuing to study Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There are seven letters there in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 written to seven different churches, and we're just walking through those letters one at a time saying, what does God's word say to us individually? What does God's word say to our family? What does God's word say to our church? What, as Emmaus Baptist Church, what can we learn from these different letters? And we've come now to chapter two in Revelation, uh, chapter two, verse 18, this letter to the church at Thyatira. If you have access to God's word on your phone or tablet device, feel free to... Uh, to pull that out, but I want us to begin reading this morning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. And then in verse 20 it says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her in the great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. Verse 23, And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. So we come here to this letter, this fourth of seven letters. It fits in the middle. It's a little bit strange that this letter to Thyatira is actually the longest of the seven letters that are given in Revelation 2 and 3. And it's the longest, I think, because it sits in the middle and it encompasses a lot of the themes that you find in the other letters. But it's not written to a prominent town. There are a lot of letters that are written to more prominent locations, but they got shorter letters. Thyatira got the longest letter, and it's kind of a backwoods sort of place. I have a map up on the screen uh, that we've used a couple of times. I know it's a little bit difficult to see, but what you're seeing on the map primarily is modern-day Turkey, uh, what is often called in the Bible Asia Minor, but you're looking at modern-day Turkey, and the seven churches kind of go in a circle as you follow them in a pattern. They go clockwise, starting with Ephesus down there in the bottom left. And where the blue star is right now is Thyatira. So not a prominent port city, a place that was destroyed by an earthquake a couple of times and came back. And then it, it's just a place that wasn't a major city, but in, they still get one of the most prominent letters you find in the New Testament and the longest letter listed in Revelation 2 to 3. Now, it's interesting that the city of Thyatira is actually mentioned in the book of Acts as well. 
In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it's talking about a lady named Lydia. Acts 16, 14, it says a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now one of the things that's interesting, we're gonna come back to this in a few minutes, but one of the things that's interesting about Acts chapter 16 is it says that Lydia, in Acts 16, 14, that Lydia was a seller of purple fabrics. When it says that she was a seller of purple fabrics, one of the things that Thyatira was known for is it was known for its business associations, its guilds, G-U-I-L-D-S, its guilds or its associations for business people. So all the leather makers, all the leather workers in the city would get together and they would have an association. All the shoemakers in the city would get together and they would have an association they were a part of. All of the potters in the city would get together and they would have an association. And Thyatira was prominent, it was known for all of these business associations that would get together. Keep that in the back of your mind because that becomes very significant just a little bit later in the, in the letter. It says next, after it's written to the, to the church in Thyatira, it says, the Son of God, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Every one of these letters in Revelation 2 to 3 has a description of Jesus that ties back to the description of Jesus that was given in Revelation chapter 1. The same thing happens here. Jesus here is called the Son of God. The son of, phrase Son of God is used about 46 times in the New Testament, but this is the only time that it shows up in the book of Revelation that Jesus is called Son of God. One of the reasons that this was so prominent that Jesus is called Son of God in this situation is that the Roman emperors, many of them, many of the Roman emperors were called a Son of God or a Son of Zeus. Here in Thyatira, Zeus's son, Zeus, one of the famous ancient uh, gods, one of his sons, Apollo, was a prominent local god in Thyatira. So this town, this city, Thyatira, knew what it was like to worship a son of a god. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, I am the son of God. I will show you who the true son of God is. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's setting himself up against how many of the Roman emperors were described and how the local people would have thought about the phrase son of God. And he asks Son of God, it says, he who has eyes like a flame of fire. Eyes like a flame of fire is a famous uh, phrase, a famous image from prophecy in the Old Testament. And it has to do with piercing eyesight. We talked last week about the idea in the ancient world that people had the evil eye. Many of you, your parents had eyes like a flame of fire. Like they could shoot fire through you with their eyes. My mom, at this little church that we grew up in, my mom would play, play the piano, and so we sat in the second row on the side where the piano was, and ladies and gentlemen as well who grew up playing the piano in small country churches have the ability, they can play the piano and look sideways at you while they're playing the piano and get onto you with their eyes while you and your brothers are in one of those rows at the front of the church. I can tell you that because it happened to me multiple, multiple times. But uh, she could play the piano, look sideways at us, and shoot flames of fire uh, if necessary. 
But when it says eyes like flame of fire, it's talking about piercing insight that Jesus sees what's going on. Jesus is able to see below the surface. At a place where it seems like everything looks pretty good on the surface, Jesus sees below the surface. That's a terrifying thought for many of us when we think about our lives. It's easy, not easy, that's probably not the right word, but it's possible on a Sunday morning to show up and look like everything is okay on the surface. We're even trained that way in churches. You show up and it looks like everything is good on the surface, and then we're reminded that the Son of God has eyes like flames of fire, that he sees below the surface, that he burns away that fake reality on the top, and he sees what's going on in the situation. And it says beyond that, that he has feet like bronze. So he has eyes like flame of fire, and he has feet like bronze. Feet like bronze is a phrase that was used in the book of Daniel. It's a phrase that you saw show up in the book of Daniel. Also, bronze making, working with bronze metal, was a common trade in Thyatira. It was something that many people would have identified with, this idea of bronze, and Jesus shows up, and he has feet like bronze. Jesus sees what's going on, and he's ready to speak into the lives of these people. So he sees what's going on, but Jesus also knows what's happening. Because he sees, he knows what's going on. You get to the next verse there. So you get past this description. You get to verse 19, and the Son of God who sees, it says in verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Now don't overlook the fact that as Jesus is addressing this church, he starts out with a really positive thing here. And there's something unique happening in this letter. This is letter number four. It sits at the middle of the seven letters. But what Jesus is doing here is he's setting up a contrast between Thyatira and Ephesus who received the first letter. Now, I don't have these verses on the, on the screen, so you'll have to turn to them or you have to look at them in your phone or your Bible. But if you go back to chapter two, verse two, so you have to scroll up in your phone or, or look there in your, in your Bible. If you go to Revelation chapter two, verse two, in the letter that was sent to Ephesus, it says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And then it says in verse three, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But then look what verse four says in chapter two. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love, or the love that you had in first. So Ephesus, the people were doing well. They weren't tolerating false prophets, but they had lost the love that they had at first. Thyatira, what are they commended for down in verse 19? I know your deeds and your love. They had the love that Ephesus lacked. They were a church that was doing well. It even says at the end of verse 19, your deeds of late are greater than your deeds at first. Now this is a challenge to churches. Your deeds of late, your deeds now are even greater than your deeds that you did at first. Here's the danger that happens in churches, and we're gonna talk about this specifically next week. But the danger is we can tell a lot of great stories about things that we've done and ways that we've seen God at work, 
Except if we're not careful, all those stories happened five years ago, or 10 years ago, or 25 years ago. Many of you, if you, uh, as you look up to your grandparents, or your uncles, or people older than you who love to tell stories, they'll tell these incredible stories, and you'll ask them, hey, when did that happen? Oh, I think it was 78. Oh, you're like, oh, so that was like forever ago. I wasn't even born there. And they tell the story like it happened yesterday, even though it was in the late 70s when this story actually happened. Churches operate like this. The church that we were a part of in Mississippi, right down on the Gulf Coast, was ground zero for Hurricane Katrina. That church was instrumental in the recovery in that town after Hurricane Katrina. But one of the things that we saw creeping up in the life of the church was 10 years after Hurricane Katrina, the only stories we had to tell were Hurricane Katrina stories. Great relief effort, amazing things happening, but that's all we were looking back to. So here's the danger for Emmaus. Emmaus is known well in our community for our work. I say our, I wasn't here, I wasn't a part of it, but, but we're in this together, our work after their tornadoes. But what happens when we look up in five years and we're still telling tornado stories? That's all we have to go back. We did great things. Our deeds were great at that time. But if we're never telling new stories, if we're never doing new ministry, if we're never singing new songs, if we're never moving in a new direction, what we find is we had great deeds in the past, but that's all we have to look back to. And Jesus looks to this church in Thyatira and says, I'm commending you because your deeds as of late are even greater than they were at the first. That doesn't, listen to me as clearly as you can as the young pastor trying to say this, that in no way devalues what happens in the past. There's a way that you value what God has called us to do in the past and at the same time say our deeds as of late need to be even greater than what they were before. We're constantly pushing forward. We're constantly asking, Lord, what are you leading us toward? And that's what Jesus says about this church. But then you get to the next verse. Then you get to verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Just so you can see the contrast between Thyatira and Ephesus, I put together a chart. My wife is the chart queen, if you've ever uh, been in a, maybe a study with her. So I, I put this chart up here, but you can see Ephesus has good deeds, but they had lost their love from the first. Thyatira, they have love, and their deeds are even greater. Ephesus, though, they did not tolerate false teachers. Thyatira, it says in verse 20 specifically, and you tolerate. You can see the way this contrast is being set up between the first letter to Ephesus and this fourth letter to Thyatira. What does it mean in verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel? Jezebel is a phrase that some people still talk about in modern day life. They'll look at someone who is a troublemaker or instigating trouble or brings bad things and they'll say, she's such a Jezebel. I know that because I looked it up on urbandictionary.com and I found that out. So uh, Now, I don't commend urbandictionary.com to you, but if you ever want to know how a word is really used in real life, you can go to urbandictionary.com and that's, the word Jezebel is still a word that's used in our culture for someone who's an instigator of trouble, who brings trouble upon herself or someone else. So it says here, Jezebel. But who is Jezebel? 
Jezebel is a figure who shows up in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapters 18 through 21, you can read about about her, but 1 Kings chapter 16, we see the first reference to Jezebel. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, who was a king in Israel in the ninth century. So it says in 1 Kings 16, 31, it came about that Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. So King Ahab, king over God's people of Israel there, marries this lady Jezebel, and she takes him away from the things of the Lord and instigates all of this rebellion against the things of the Lord. In the Old Testament, Jezebel is not a prophetess herself, but she essentially sponsors a bunch of false prophets and she tries to destroy the prophets of God. She's completely opposed to the things of the Lord. And so when you get to the New Testament, to Revelation chapter two, and it talks about this false prophetess Jezebel, it's picking up on this Old Testament story of someone who has come in and is causing trouble in the church. And churches today, and Emmaus today, and in your life today, we have to be on guard against a Jezebel spirit because a Jezebel spirit will infect and destroy a church so quickly. The Jezebel of the Old Testament destroyed King Ahab's court and this Jezebel that shows up in the New Testament will destroy a church in a hurry. So what are the signs of a Jezebel spirit? The first sign of a Jezebel spirit is deep teaching as cover for unholy living. Deep teaching as cover for unholy living. Here's what I mean by that. In verse 20, in verse 20 it says, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. So there's something about her teaching, something about her involvement in leadership here that's leading the people astray. Then you skip ahead to verse 24. You skip ahead to verse 24, and it says, I say to you, the rest in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who do not hold on to this teaching of Jezebel, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they are called. What seems to be happening here is that this lady, who wouldn't have been called Jezebel at the time, but is being connected with this Old Testament figure Jezebel, is coming in and she's offering a new deep teaching, a new profound mysterious teaching that no one had ever heard before, nobody had ever grasped before. And she's coming in saying, my teaching is deeper and more spiritual and more profound than anything you ever heard. And with that deep teaching, she's leading the people into lives that are completely opposed to the ways of God. Here's where we have to be careful about this. In our modern 21st century American churches, Oftentimes, we get into battles about who has the deepest teaching. Oh, we have deeper teaching than they do over there. Oh, no, 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 our teacher, he teaches deeper than they do over there. Oh, no, 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 if you go over here, this guy, he has deeper teaching. Except deeper teaching here is not something that the Lord holds up as a good thing. It's identified as something that is leading people away from the ways of God. Here's how this happens. There is a good form of deep teaching. A good form of deep teaching is when the teacher or the pastor exposes the word of God in such a way that you are able to see clearly what the meaning is and the implications for your life. The bad form 
of deep teaching is when somebody comes along and says, oh, I have something for you you've never heard before. It's deep and spiritual and mysterious. And you hear it, and something about it sounds good to your ears, but it sounds terrible in your heart. And then you find yourself following that person, and before you know, they're sponsoring or leading you toward ways of living that are completely opposed to the things of the Lord. Deep Bible teaching is not found when someone describes their teaching as deep or profound or mysterious. Deep Bible teaching is found when it points you to Christ and following after him. So Matthew chapter 28 gives us an indication of this. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore, Jesus says, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Not teaching them all that I've commanded you, but teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Second Timothy chapter three, when it talks about the inspiration of God's word, that God's word comes to us in power. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The reason that God's word is inspired is not so we can have deep Bible teaching. The reason God's word is inspired is so that we'll be equipped to live out the life that he's called us to live. Be very careful of Bible teaching that makes your intellect feel puffed up and superior and super spiritual, and yet you don't find yourself growing closer to the ways of Christ. So many times this Jezebel spirit comes in and we engage with the scripture with our mind, but our heart is far from the Lord. In your Sunday school classes, in the Bible studies that you take part in, do you take part in that Sunday school class or that Bible study because you want deep teaching or because you want to follow after the ways of the Lord? Because if we're not careful, this Jezebel spirit will come in and we'll become more fascinated with deep teaching than we will with following after the Lord. And another sign of Jezebel's spirit comes out of verse 20. If you go back to verse 20, and it's talking about being led astray, notice where they're led astray. They're led astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Here's what's going on in Thyatira. Remember that there are these these uh, business unions, these business associations that you were a part of. So if you're a part of the Leather Workers Association, when you would get together every month with the other leather workers, you got together because it was a political lobbying group. You also got together because it was your main form of community. It was your main form of gathering together and finding your identity. But also, your business union, your business association would have a god or goddess associated with it. And these gatherings, the people would give worship. They would give worship in some form to whatever god or goddess was associated with their business association. And so what it seems like Jezebel is doing with the people here, she's saying, hey, that's great that you're a part of the church over here, but it's okay when you go to your business association and they ask you to eat food that was sacrificed to whatever your association's god or goddess is. And these meetings that would happen with these business associations often would involve immoral behavior. Because we have kids in here, we don't need to describe what that was, but 
they would involve immoral behavior. And you say, well, why didn't they just not go to their business association meeting anymore? Because they would have lost their job, they would have lost all of their social standing, and they could have even lost their life because of it. Imagine what it would feel like to say, if I don't show up to our business meeting at work next month, I know I'm gonna lose my job, I know I'm gonna lose my standing in the community, but if I do show up at the business association meeting next month, I'm gonna be asked to give worship to a false god, and I'm probably gonna be tempted to take part in behavior that's not honoring to the Lord. Do you feel the tension that these people would have faced in that situation? Some of you may say, I feel the tension because I live in that world every day of my life. It may be the reality for some of you. And what's coming here is this deep teaching is causing spiritual compromise that often is resulting in sexual immorality and worship given to a false god. And it usually comes in that, in that particular form. A church that's infected with the Jezebel spirit is a church in which people try to have two masters. God is master and money, social standing, what the New Testament sometimes calls mammon. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says you can't have two masters. It never works that way. You'll either give worship to God or you'll give worship to something else. It's this danger of saying I have my Bible study church life over here and I have the rest of my life over here. That Jezebel spirit will begin to infect a church in that way. You go to the next verse, Verse 24, I'm sorry, not verse 24, verse 21. What's the response to this Jezebel spirit? Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. Okay, so let's make sure we're clear on this. Jesus is very upfront with this church here that if you are infected by this Jezebel spirit, if you go down this road, there are consequences for that sin. The phrase bed of sickness is probably playing on the idea of sexual immorality, that the bed of pleasure has become the bed of sickness, that you're reaping what you've sown, so to speak. It's probably the, the imagery that's going on there that there are consequences. There's judgment against going away from the things of the Lord. And you may be here saying, man, that's exactly why I can't stand church. I'm already scared of a lightning bolt hitting me, and now you're telling me that this is going to happen, that if I go away from the ways of the Lord, that judgment is going to come? Don't miss verse 21, though. I gave her time to repent. The offer for repentance, the offer for salvation is there before the description of the judgment. Don't go away thinking about your image of God as a God up there waiting to throw a lightning bolt at you or waiting to bring trouble in your family or waiting to bring trouble in your business. God leads in verse 21 with saying, I gave her time to repent. And this Jezebel spirit is not I tripped up one or twice, once or twice and made a bad decision. It is my heart has become hard and I'm prideful and I want to set up camp in my sin and this is how I'm gonna live no matter what. 2 Peter chapter 3 is a good balanced verse at this point. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. So over and over again in scripture, you find going away from the ways of the Lord leads to judgment. That, that's clear, we see that. And yet equally clear in scripture is there is opportunity for repentance, there is opportunity for salvation. He's a good and loving and forgiving God. And both of those are true at the same time. And so this letter is given to this church and this letter is given to you and me this morning so that we would take a look at our lives and saying, are we infected with this Jezebel spirit that values deep teaching but our lives are far from the Lord or are we ready to commit our way to the Lord? And that's what you get to in verse 24 that I was trying to jump ahead to earlier. Verse 24, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Verse 25, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Hold on to Christ. What's the answer when you live in a culture that you're constantly challenged to compromise your faith? It's to hold on to Christ. Hold on to what you know. Salvation, and we're gonna see this, I think I maybe put this on your notes on the back of the bulletin, but I don't remember. Salvation works itself out often in three ways. Past, present, and future. And they're being told here, look to that salvation that you have in Christ and hold on to that. And then they're said in the very next verse, in verse 26, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. This is the ongoing nature of salvation that we're constantly working out our salvation saying, I'm gonna continue to look to the things of the Lord. Next week, we're gonna look at a letter in which we talk about what does it mean to overcome? What does it mean to have security and salvation? Can you lose your salvation? How does that play itself out? That comes up in the next letter, the very next letter given here in Revelation. We'll look at it next week. But the point here in this letter is I'm holding on to Christ and the only way I'm going to overcome in life is to continue to hold on to Christ. And not only that, but it says after that in verse 26, to him, to the one who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. In Revelation 2 right there, it's picking up on language from Psalm chapter 2 with prophecies of the Messiah. And so Jesus is telling people, if you hold on to me, you're going to participate in the glory of God's kingdom. That I've come as the Messiah. I've come as the King of kings and Lord of lords. When you hold on to me, you're gonna share in my glory. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. What does it mean that we will be given the morning star? The morning star in the ancient world was a reference to Venus, to the planet Venus. Now we realize Venus is not, uh, not a star, but Venus we think about oftentimes as that morning planet that you see that stands out there. And all throughout history, the morning star, the bright morning star has been associated with Venus. Venus in the ancient world was also a goddess of victory, a goddess of triumph. What's taking place here is Jesus is saying, when you hold on to me, when you don't go the way of Jezebel, but when you hold on to me and follow after me, 
you're going to find that bright morning star. You're going to find Venus. You're going to find victory and triumph. And the cool thing is it appears again at the end of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, and we're going to wrap up the sermon with this verse. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. So in Revelation chapter two, when Jesus promises them the bright morning star, what's he doing? He's promising them himself. His glory, his victory, his power will be ours not when we compromise, not when we get sucked in by this fake deep teaching, but when we say, I'm giving everything to the Lord. I'm gonna surrender all to him. And so the choice becomes in Revelation chapter two, am I gonna take part in Jezebel's meal? Am I gonna take part in this meal over here that keeps my social and economic standing but will steal my soul? Or am I gonna take part in the meal of Christ? Am I going to look to him for salvation, to him for hope? 